Welcome to the National Academy. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to see so many people here tonight and so many new and familiar faces as well. I just want to say um, welcome to the first review panel of 2009. I'm Marshall Price, the curator of modern and contemporary art. And um, thank you for coming. Before I introduce the moderator this evening, I just want to let you know that we want to keep in touch with you if you want to hear about the programs that are going on here at the National Academy. So before you leave this evening, please leave us your business card or your name and address and or email address so that we can keep in contact with you. So with that, I'd like to introduce David Cohen, the moderator of the review panel. David is the um, editor of artcritical.com and he runs the gallery at the New York Studio School. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to David this evening. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much indeed. You know, uh, Graham White, who's our audio expert here, uh, looked at the uh, house filling up this evening and said, uh, uh, David, they've missed you. Well, um, I, hope it's, uh, I hope it's not me, but a stimulating uh, debate and discourse on visual art and three highly distinguished guests that uh, I, I suspect is what's um, filled the house this evening. Um, and it's wonderful to see you all. Um, my guests are Elizabeth Shamblin, who is a senior editor at um, Art Forum and a regular writer for that journal. Um, Joan Waltermatt is an artist and a, an editor at large at the Brooklyn Rail. And Ken Johnson is art critic for the New York Times. I think when one has a high-level association, when you invite guests who have high-level associations with um, Art Forum, the Brooklyn Rail, and the New York Times, it does make uh, the introductions quick and easy. Um, so on the subject of introductions, as, as there are some... Uh, as there are many faces that I have not seen in this audience before. Perhaps you would be kind enough to put your hand up if you, this is your first review panel. It would be interesting to know. Well, that's, that's fantastic. So um, let, me, let me just quickly run through um, the format for your benefit. Um, what we're doing is we're reviewing four exhibitions. Um, put your hand up if you know what those shows are and you've seen two of them or more. Ah, uh, Yes. I'll spare you that terrible crack that you're getting bored with, which is, that's more than we've seen. But um, <laughs> I, I promise at the next panel, I won't even tell, tell you that I once made that crack. So um, the format for the evening is this. It's simplicity itself. Um, we um, have seen these four exhibitions. We're going to review them uh, one at a time. We're going to throw our spectacles around if we uh, <laughs> really feel that it's... Um, Appropriate, and um, you know, the denigration of vision is the only valid response to this work of art. Um, we we see the shows. We do a little PowerPoint presentation as a quick visual reminder of what we've seen, or what might turn out to be a rather dark and dingy approximation of what we've seen, because we're having a little trouble with our projector. But um, uh, and then we review a couple of the shows, and then it's a, ta a chance for the audience to let off steam make some quick comments or probing questions, and then we go back and look at the other two. So that is the format, which is, um, uh, let's, let's put it in action.
So the first show that we've been to see and we'd like to discuss is in fact a two-part exhibition uh, of, of Peter Doig uh, downtown here at uh, Gavin Brown's Enterprise. So a few installation shots. And the show continued, or started, depending on your point of view, where you started your day, at uh, Michael Werner Gallery uptown, on the Upper East Side, not far from here, with these monumental canvases and some smaller works. Great. Well, I've I've been a uh, okay. Oh. Good. Few few latecomers do do come in and try and grab a seat if you can, or sit on the table at the back. Good. Well, I've I've long been a fan of this artist. Um, I find his work. Uh, very rich and very intriguing. And I, I wondered if, if, if all of my panelists share that view. Um, Elizabeth, what did you make of Doig? What have you made of him in the past, and how does what we've seen now measure up to that? Or is, do you feel you'd rather just go at it as a, as a new experience? Well, I mean, both in a way. I mean, I think in the past he's, he's a painter whose work I've always appreciated. I think he is um, kind of a virtuoso in a way. He has a command of this vast kind of vocabulary of marks and effects and and yet um, somehow on a visceral or subjective level I don't feel that I've ever quite connected to it that's just a very nice sort of I mean not deeply um, but with these shows I think particularly the works at uh, Gavin Brown I felt that <laughs> there was uh, I felt that maybe in the past I hadn't appreciated something very a real strangeness in his works that seem to be coming to the fore in, in the paintings at, at Gavin Brown for me, um, which I, I, I like strange. Strange is good, so I kind of appreciated that. And I think with the, I mean, and for me, a lot of that kind of emerged from, um, in a few of the paintings at Gavin Brown, there were these kind of rigid geometries just sort of interpolated into the paintings and, and integrated kind of imperfectly, um, I mean, most strikingly. The grid behind the ping pong table. Yes, yes. And um, 
I just thought, um, you know, I liked that painting very much, and mm. um, it, I, I think just something about the the interaction between the grid and the um, and and the kind of this sort of very peculiar mise en scène it was in, and then of course this orange, um, the orange paddle that the mm -hmm. um, the guy is holding. It's just so almost like a it was just a pure kind of jolt of visual pleasure in a way. This shot of orange and um, the ease with which he had kind of suggested the angle yes. of it. Or, anyway, so. so Ken, visceral pleasures and strange, uh, good in a, in a good way, strange uh, alignments of geometry and, and uh, looser expressivity. Um, how did that all add up for you? I, I think he's one of the most overrated artists in the world. <laughs> I, I think his compositions are really dull. And I don't, the, the exoticism of it, the, uh, this sort of Gauguin-esque kind of living in, where does he live? In, in the Trinidad. Trinidad. You know, that feels almost obnoxious to me. And uh, um, those big ones with, uh, at, at Werner, I, I sort of like the big bubble. That's kind of odd, but it's such a flat composition. Isn't it? Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I guess I'm interested in in his earnestness, but I'm a little. It feels like almost. It, it's a little like Eric Fischel now. It's like you know, I'm a see how wonderful painter I am, and you know, there's a self-congratulatory thing, and the work just seems completely irrelevant to me to anything that that I care about in the art world right now. So. So. Sorry to be so mealy-mouthed about it. Not at all. It's 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 good. This is this is not the place for um, uh, undue false flattery of anybody and or anything. Um, and we've already got a little bit of a dialectic going here. Um, somebody who said he loves it. Uh, somebody who said she appreciates it, but is not quite sure. And 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 then this. So. Uh, <laughs> With dialectics, the fourth position is always the most intriguing. So, Joan. Thank you. Um, well, I found it was very difficult to um, look at those two exhibitions as an introduction to his work, especially knowing that he has had tremendous exposure as of late. Um, I found myself really struggling to find the subject of this work. And I, I, I got to reflect on what Ken just said about the compositions being really weak, because composition should lead you to the subject, and I couldn't find the subject. And I kept feeling that, well, maybe if I'd seen five years worth of this work, I'd really understand what he was talking about. As a painter, I'm not really wowed by his ability with the paint, so that didn't seduce me into some greater appreciation. I did have moments, um, I want to agree with what Elizabeth said about the ping pong paintings and the attempt to bring a geometric sensibility together with these natural views. And it was there that I found the greatest possibility opening up to understand his subject and what he really had to share with us. The other moment that I felt that was in looking at those large paintings at Peter Werner where you have these sort of bat man figures mm -hmm. and I felt there that he was 
aiming for a kind of transcendent um, uh, subject, or not the subject, that's what I want to say. He, he was trying to create some kind of transcendence in painting and show where we were collectively with those three paintings. And I felt, when I looked at that big form on the horizon that was such a bland composition, I thought, well, this is like the brick on our collective psyche right now, so that's sort of funny. But, but it wasn't like I, without this panel, I would have walked out and forgotten them all in 15 minutes. Ah, oh, right. So it's a, a spin on Andy Warhol. Everyone's entitled to 15 minutes of oblivion. Uh, I, I, I feel actually that uh, I like Ken's remark very much of their, their Gauguin uh, connection, but rather than feeling offended by that, I feel that that's the key to, to, to what he is and where he's at. Um, I, I'm not, like Elizabeth, wowed by the technique. I think he's essentially... Um, he's, they're rich and intriguing works, but actually... Um, rather cack-handed works, and what's actually powerful about them is is not uh, virtuos virtuosity, um, but as the the subject, which is uh, being lost in paradise uh, or paradise lost, um, which isn't quite the same thing, but employs the same words. Um, <laughs> you, you've got uh, you've got um, you don't need to you don't need to see the the earlier work. I, I don't think one should have to say. In his earlier work, he did X, Y, Z in order to understand what one is doing in, in you know, a, a pair of but current do, shows. Do. But in the, think, think of, if you do know them, think of those um, Corbusian buildings in, lost in the woods. It's a sense of nature uh, over, uh, um, reclaiming an idealistic um, attempt at uh, progressive mankind going against nature. And then so then this... Um, the, the primitivism is a little tongue-in-cheek, but he is living the primitive... Well, it's not... That, that would be a third-worldist, but he is, he is living a, a relatively simple life outside of um, the, 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 the capitalist mainstream, to some extent, by where he's chosen to live. But it's, it, it's, it's enacting a kind of Gauguin fantasy. But I think, he's, I think there's always, it's always very knowing. It's not... He's not... Um, he's not... Um, just a symbolist. I think it's. I think. I think that he's part of quite a broad trend in contemporary art of of painters playing around with that moment in art history just before modernism crystallized, when when you when you know symbolism was the kind of what was going on. Now I think that says something about our our time, and I think it says something about the the ambitions of some of the artists who interest some of us and clearly interest um, the institutions and the market and what have you, because these are artists of a certain ascendancy. I think this is his second show in New York, I believe, so he hasn't been seen that much. But my recollection is he he was working off a photo. His his first show, there was, he was working from a lot of different sources. He was sort of crashing stuff together in in pretty interesting ways, and it seemed to give him a you know, he could mess around with paint in a lot more interesting ways. Um, so, I, what I, as I remember, is last year. But your point about symbolism, I'm curious about that. To what end? Well, if you think of some other artists at uh, um, uh, Gavin Brown's enterprise, for instance, like uh, uh, Silke Otto Knapp and uh, Mimi Anderson, and if you think also about 
doig in relation to a painter like um, Merlin James, who is not a million miles away. Mm. I think you begin to build up a picture, and then if you think about Elizabeth Payton also at, um, uh, at, at Gavin Brown and elsewhere. I mean, um, I'm not just, I hope I'm not dropping names here, but I'm just trying to build up a, sort of a, a sense of a, a matrix of uh, younger artists who uh, have a nostalgia for a certain early modernism, who um, uh, are making art about being a little bit lost and but really wanting to connect, and making art that has this um, interesting, intriguing kind of um, juggling act between the two, between uh, uh, virtuosity and cack-handedness, between being grounded and being lost, um, between being uh, very current and being a little anachronistic. So, um, what do we make of the geometry that um, uh, Elizabeth pointed out? Uh, does that make any... Do those of you who think he's forgotten in 15 minutes or uh, the most overrated artist, that might be a question that's not necessarily going to... Um, provoke you into... I think you, you got it when you said it was the, um, you know, confrontation of uh, the built world and the natural world. I think that's pretty clear. And, and the sort of difficulty of bringing those two things together in painting, I think, is something that I could say a lot of... I've seen a lot of abstract painters struggling with over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, it was very interesting for me to see how he was able to resolve that within a figurative context. And it seemed, those for me were the most fruitful. And those, I found those were the paintings I ended up looking at for the longest period of time. Hmm. Hmm. Like the one with the blue wall? Yeah, because those seemed relevant and they weren't, I mean, I, I feel like there's a kind of lack of responsibility of form in in the Gauguin-esque approach, especially mm. at this moment, to just sort of run into escape. So seeing how he was, you know, somehow tackling the problem with those um, geometric and organic forms coming together, to me, was just like something to bite into. Mm. Well, it, gets, it, it makes the painting come right up front. I mean, the, the paint is... It's a, there's more there there, but, but I couldn't get around the ping pong players. That was so badly <laughs> painted. You're just cringing. <laughs> yeah. Well, would you rather they were well painted, like quote unquote well painted, <laughs> like a Neo Rausch, if he was doing a ping pong player? I mean, it seems to me those two artists make a very interesting comparison, Rausch and Doig. Um, it seems to me that Rausch is so um, coming out of academic technique and graphic design, um, and Doig doesn't allow himself to be anchored so easily in the quotational. Well, uh, Rausch is a surrealist. How I mean, come? it's all about the image. I mean, he's, he's an in, sort of a slick, slick painter, but, uh, mm -hmm. I, but there's, noth there's nothing very compelling about the imagery in, in Doig, I don't think. Really? I, I kind of want to be in those places, or I'm intrigued about those places. There's that Isle of the Dead kind of a composition which I find very enrich, rich and, and, and engaging. Uh, Elizabeth, don't, do, do you think, do you, do you accept Ken's notion that he has no sense of composition? Well, I mean, I think it just depends on how much intentionality, I mean, I'm not saying, you can get into an infinite regress where you can say, well, he means that figure to be, I mean, obviously, you know, horribly painted. And I, I think there's a certain, Obviously, I mean, a lot of the figuration is unbelievably 
clumsy and and um, but I always kind of assume that there's a certain that you know he's doing that. Um, I don't mind how they're painted. I just don't get who cares about ping pong players. I, you know, I mean, they don't mean anything to me. I don't. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not. You know, I I'm not championing. I mean, I don't know who these people are. Are they like natives or are they like tourists? Uh, well, he's a, what's players. the situation? Maybe this is why you forget them so quickly because he, there's, no, there's no way that he's making them compelling to you because you shouldn't... I, I feel as a painter, you shouldn't be saying who cares about ping pong players. If I paint them, you should care about them because of how I paint them and what right. I see in them. So... You know why? You know that's there's something missing there for me in what's in in the how of the painting, and yeah. it's not that he it it's not that he has to paint like Neil Rausch or, or have some incredible facility, but um, perhaps the lack of facility uh, is also revealing a kind of lack of compassion or connection to the subject. And that was my initial critique of it, is like, mm. I can't locate the subject there. Well, I mean, you wouldn't it, care, you wouldn't, for instance, if it was Aikens painting um, ping pong players, you'd certainly be interested in them, wouldn't you? He so, would have some point of view on it that know, would make you look at some specific aspect of that. Ping pong players are no more intrinsically dull than canoers or, I mean, or, or, uh, <laughs> or wrestlers. Not. No. Well, yeah, if it, say it was Alex Katz. Yes. I mean, then it would have, but then it would have this like clear sense of, say, class. It would be, it would be about um, some kind of uh, social. You know, there would there would be a s evidence of some social meaning to it, or style. And then the whole thing about the the Gauguin thing is, I mean, you say he's painting outside the capitalist system. I mean, he's one of the biggest money-making artists in the world. His paintings, mm. the paintings yeah. are, but I mean, he. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> but he's you know he's got a business going. He's um, mm. and here he lives you know uh, I presume a very privileged life. Not that he didn't work for it, but um, well, I get. The is there some? I mean, what's how do we connect just to that kind of tropical paradise? Fantasy now. I mean, what is? You know, it's it's you, you can't take it. It's not the same as it was when Gauguin did it. And know. Now it's either a timeshare or a two-week vacation. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that I mean, David, that's. Do, do you think that's an issue about the subject? Yeah, I I I don't think that they are um, about um, that. There's anything. They're not, he's not a realist. He's not painting about the place he's living in or visiting. Um, so I, I don't think that's the level at which they should be dealt with. I think there is a sense of um, um, the kind of the mystery that, that, that arises from a remoteness, from um, uh, being grounded in a particular place. So, um, so, so they are, I think they are lost. They're dazed and confused. That's, the, that's their aesthetic. Hmm. That's how I take their aesthetic to be, what their, their aesthetic to be. That seems about the clearest thing you could say about them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We've reached consensus. They are lost. 
good lost or bad lost is, is obviously <laughs> a subject for enduring debate. But let's move on to our next show and see what we find. We've been looking at Rebecca Quaitman at uh, Miguel Abreu Gallery on the Lower East Side. And let's go through these slowly and just, I, I'm trying not to impose commentary, but, well, I, I guess as we discuss them, we'll be inevitably describing them. But if you didn't see them, you're not seeing them now. It's, Chapter 12, I Am, by the way, is the title of the show and, and the title of most of the works, as you see. Well, to compensate for the images, um, Joan, can I ask you to perform a function for us and just give us sort of non-judgmentally and non-interpretatively <laughs> non a sort of empirical description of what we were seeing? Oh, do you think that's possible? <laughs> Let's not have a philosophical discussion about whether it's possible. Okay, Let's I'll just, just state yes. that and then I'll okay. do my best knowing right. that it's impossible. Um, well, when you go in and you, you see these works by Rebecca Quaitman, you're looking at a series of pixelated images that shift as you move towards them. You see things, they disappear as you move in. You, from your peripheral vision, you can catch color spectrums at the edges of black and white pixelation grids that then disappear when you turn to look at them. Um, there's diamond dust sparkled in concentric circles over two of the surfaces, I think, and those create this kind of exciting, you know, glittery, glamorous atmosphere in there, of, which is among very seriously intended works. Yes. From, I think from our last show where we concluded it was lost, whether we like that or not. This, uh, Elizabeth, I think uh, you mentioned intentionality, that there wouldn't be any question, would there, of with every um, uh, pictorial and textural and textual uh, reference that, that, that there's a very strong sense of intentionality. Does it take us a little too far in the other direction, or are you happy with that intentionality? I mean, I was happy with it. I, I mean, it's a very cerebral and precise show um, that kind of, you know, you're, well, I think Joan described it very well. There's, there are many different optical effects going on and, and you're always a little bit off balance. And, um, um, but of course they're knitted together around this idea of the blind spot, um, which uh, um, is kind of articulated in different paintings in different ways. I mean, I think with some of them, she, she's actually, trying to represent the way glare on, on the surface of a painting will create this kind of, you know, spot where the field of vision kind of falls apart. Um, and, um, I mean, I enjoyed it very much. I thought that it was, I mean, obviously there was a little bit of a kind of op effect filtering through. There were some that you literally 
could not get close to because they seemed to pulsate so intensely. And um, so there was a kind of connection between the visual and the, the physical, the, the haptic. Um, but at the same time, um, there was a poetics to it, I thought, um, and a kind of, you know, um, a place for, there was a kind of interplay between, I guess, the cerebral and the somewhat more, um, um, I mean, expressionistic is obviously yes. the wrong word. Poetic was good. Ken, um, cerebral poetic, which was it most for you? I uh, think they're mainly optical, but <clears throat> she's an artist that, you know, she was head of Orchard Gallery, which had this, you know, a bunch of brainy people started this nonprofit gallery, and and you, <clears throat> I feel like there's some kind of conceptual program in it, but I, I don't, I really like the way, I like just looking at them, and I like to play, there's, those, if you didn't, those of you who saw it, there's that black grid with white dots in each intersection, and if you look at this dot, the other dots turn black, and it, and it flickers all, it's a really weird, and, and that's, she got that from, she lifted that from, she didn't make that up. It's, a, it's it called the Herman grid, and right. it was invented in the 19th century, or discovered in the 19th century. Yeah. And, and the, the, the painting with the man in it, mm -hmm. th that's Dan Graham. Dan Graham, yes, yes. I, I, Which adds another grid to the whole thing, doesn't it? Dan Graham, a sort of well-known artist from the 60s, 70s. So I'm, I mean, Elizabeth, I'm curious. No. Hmm? Yes, I, I mean, I'm curious what, what, you, what you think the work is mm -hmm. about. Oh, I, I mean, I, I don't think I could, I don't think I really formulated, mm -hmm. I, when I say poetics, it doesn't necessarily mean that I think there's, you know, a, a subject or a narrative. But I mean, we started talking about intentionality, so mm -hmm. what, what is, I, I find the work sort of puzzling as to what the intentionality is. Well, David mentioned intentionality. I mean, I, I don't know that also, I... Also, intentionality is not I, intentions. Intentionality, we just want to mean that... Um, uh, you feel it's there for a reason. The intention is the reason. So we haven't talked about intentions yet. We've only talked about intentionality. I, I, my experience was that um, I, I felt very much, I, I liked it very much, but I felt like I was the same kind of way I do when I listen to some very um, experimental music, say uh, Morton Feldman or John Cage or someone, I think this is really good for me. I really like this. It's cool. It's fun. It's making me a better person. But I, I have no idea what it really is about. Well, is it, uh, is it some, sometimes I think it's like a commentary on modernism. And, and the whole thing about, like, op art was, was considered a really cheesy kind of uh, thing in the, in the 60s. Yes. So that sort of recuperation of op art, that has, seems to have some kind of... Well, op art was a funny movement because it was cheesy as soon as it happened. But as soon as it was finished, it was incredibly smart to quote it. Well, 20 years later... Wow, almost five minutes later, it seems. Really? Well, we need to delve into my memory banks to, to justify that assertion, but I, it's a hunch that I'm, I'm happy to work with. <laughs> well, I mean, Bridget Riley herself left it behind pretty quickly to move on to something else. But let's... Um, let, let, can we fix what these might then mean? Um, I think it was... To me, it was pretty clear when I went in what this work was about. Um, I found it to be the most inspiring show that I went to see. And um, 
it was really very much aided by the clear installation of the works within the exhibition. I felt that um, Rebecca was engaging in a, an investigation of the syntactical elements of grammar, of mediation. In other words, she's looking at all these different media and trying to figure out how pixels, dot screens, different kind of visual effects play into the way that we interpret and understand imagery. And so she stays with a very simple image. She repeats it over and over again. She uses light as her subject. Um, what was maybe beautiful for me was um, looking at how within the, interpreting it in this way as an investigation into the grammar of seeing, she really places painting back into the position of the queen of all the arts because of its unmediated nature and in the, in the way that we see it through this direct light. Um, I think the optical, all the optical effects are there and she's showing you how different media create all these effects and in a sense are, are between us and seeing what's there because when you step, you see these dazzling effects and like in the, in the image that you saw with the three bands of red, yellow, and um, blue, I believe it was. As you step forward into this painting, those three colors completely disappear and all you see is a grid of rectangles that are slightly tilted. When you step back, the, the grid starts to vibrate like a um, raster on a TV screen, so you, you get that sense of mediation. But when you're really close, you can see it directly in the way that you see something that's hand-painted that's not mediated. So there was a, I had a sense of her bringing together um, all of the elements and all of the, well, let's say, the syntactical elements that we deal with in interpreting what we're looking at in our everyday lives in the world around us because we interpret photographs, we interpret paintings, we, we're looking at things through dot screens, we see things that are pixelated and not pixelated, and all of these inform how we actually see the image and have an effect on how we can interpret it interpret and remember these images. So it was a collective where I felt like we had reached the point where it was beyond questions of media, but more looking at, uh, or let's say beyond questions of painting, but looking at how um, just the act of seeing was um, uh, obtains in our era. Right. Well, Thank you. <clears throat> They're not paintings. I was calling them panels by the time I left there and, and thinking about this very interesting connection to wood panel paintings from the Middle Ages hmm. and how this medium of wood then becomes uh, an effect. There's one painting where you see like this wood grain that's hmm. kind of interfering with the pixelated grid. And to me that, that was, like an incredible image that, that had a span in a sense that was, was very long and talked about the history of our collective mm -hmm. seeing. They're not paintings because they're not brushed or they're not paintings because... They're silk screens. They're made by silk screening. Also, I don't, I didn't see, I don't see the checker pattern as, as pixels. I don't know if, if you guys, what you guys think. 
I thought, I mean, well, some of them, um, as I approached them, I thought that they were raster, rast, uh, uh, or at least in a depiction of raster dots, like on a, on a piece of newsprint, but they were tiny checkers. But I think the, the effect was certainly a kind of a, a pixelation. Right, but in, in pixelation, you have usually it's little squares that go together to make an image. Mm -hmm. with, with this work, when that, I thought what was really cool was you got close to them, and when you looked at a certain spot in the field, it would bulge out at you. It was, it had, and, and as your sh vision is shifting around, the bulging is happening in different places. Well, and, that, and does ha that, that is a characteristic of pixelation, even if, it's, even if one would want to grasp technically uh, a, a, a better, another word. But I mean, it, it's, it's, in other words, elements that are broken down that r read differently from a certain distance to cohere as an image. Well, I do agree that there's, there's something that, about yeah. how you, you know, the work is about making you aware of seeing as you're seeing. Sure. I mean, there's, there's, there's one in the, I don't remember its title, well, they all have the same title, but there was one in the back room on the uh, left-hand corner on the wall facing you um, where it really looked like there were these um, black, where, where the crosses met at the point of intersection, it looked to be that when you looked in one area, it looked like on others there was like an electricity making, it the, um, making those intersections flicker, say, black, but when you actually went and looked at them, they were white, or maybe the other way around. I, I guess the moral of this, I mean, there's, a, I suppose, a philosophical point about that, which is that, you know, we see the world through our eyes, and our eyes have sort of a Quirks, characteristic yes. way of responding to reality, so mm -hmm. we never, we don't, we don't see reality naked, so, so maybe there's a kind of epistemological... Um, it feels like of, a lot of artwork, though, at least the last 60 years, has been doing that kind of work. Right, right. It does so seem... It's, it is, it does, there's a very, I mean, it's funny, just going back to Doig, that, you know, um, where some of us, are, some of you, are troubled when there's a sort of um, uh, an anachronistic feel of symbolism. But in fact, I mean, what I liked, what I enjoyed about the experience of being there with those very high-minded uh, and at the same time kind of pretty paintings was um, a sort of a bit of a throwback to the semiotics of the 60s and 70s, um, which was before my time, but um, um, I had the sense that that was a time when uh, very earnest people with long hair were having very interesting conversations about very important subjects and making these very cool kind of artworks. So th there's, it's just, I mean, it can be just, I'm not, saying that, I'm not saying that to detract from the genuine earnestness of her endeavor, but um, it is uh, a kind of, and in fact, the aesthetic of Orchard uh, Street Gallery was very much like that. There was a very um, happening semiotics kind of feel to that whole gallery, wasn't there? As I remember. Yes. <laughs> As one thing I found really that allowed me to make the kind of interpretation that I made of her work was that the fact that this painting, which has been mentioned a few times, the Herman Grid, that created these optical effects appeared in the exhibition three times. It appeared as a painting. Then when you entered the gallery, it, there was a photograph of it hanging horizontally in which when photographed, these optical effects didn't occur. Then there was another image of it which was behind Dan Graham where you saw it mm -hmm. in relationship to a specific context. And that looked like the background to Mybridge's photographs. Is there a connection historically with that? That those graphs? 
Mm, I don't know, but it certainly evoked that kind of mm. um, investigation. It's sort Science, of, yes. Well, but, yeah. but he seemed to be kind of rearing back, almost as if he was reacting to the, to the optical. Yes, that was, that was a, a theatrical moment, wasn't it? In this? Yeah, and I think that's what kind of opened it up for me. I mean, I completely agree, obviously. It's, mm. it's very much about, you know, the kind of physical, um, um, the optical operations of, of seeing, but I thought it was, int- I mean, I don't know, it, it's just a subjective reaction, but he's such a strange figure in that painting, this kind of bearded figure with, and his face is kind of bleached out, and it almost seemed to invite, it was this, almost like a reminder that you have to reckon with the fact that some of, some of the paintings are representational also, they have, uh, even if beyond that one, very minimally, so you just see kind of a light bulb fading out into a, into a gray background. So it didn't all come together neatly for me, but I thought, um, I mean, on the one hand, she obviously she, she's silk screening instead of making her, her mark on the canvas, so the gesture is totally eradicated, but there's... Um, but then there are paintings kind of, in there where you do see gestures, like the first image we saw of the called the vanity of something, I don't remember the title, where, where it's an actual oil painting on wood panel of, it looks like a light at the end of a tunnel or something, and then there's another one called Lotes Poem that's also an actual oil painting and not mm. screened, although most of them are silk screened. But, but silk screen doesn't um, take it in, away from painting and put it into printmaking, otherwise we'd lose most of the work of Warhol and Sigmar Polko to printmaking when they're clearly paintings. And they're on big heavy supports and they're in a, their paintings. Um, no? Yeah, I think that's, for me, that was why I felt like we'd finally gone beyond those specific kind of questions and were on to some other kind of mm. investigation of how we, how we see and, and navigate with, yes. through all these different um, kinds of mm-hmm. mediations. They're, they're very abstract. I mean, they're not abstract just in the sense of oh, that's not a thing I know in the world. They're abstract in that they really take the phenomena of, of seeing and distill it. But, I mean, they, they have a foot in photography, too. I mean, they're, they're, they're photos. So, so does Manet. <laughs> hmm. And, I mean, Warhol went to a lot of trouble to, to sort of make his subscreens look painterly. Yes. And... Um, I don't she know, doesn't. it seems like... Hmm? She doesn't. No. She goes to a lot of trouble to make her paintings seem silk I mean, she, she makes you aware of, the, as you say, the panels, and, the, and there's like a plywood edge on the surface of, of at least of a couple mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. So you're... I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which they're like these modernist, self-referential, self-reflexive, you know, mm-hmm. artworks about themselves. Mm. So they've got, they're kind of like like a hall of mirrors um, yeah. kind of I think this is a good moment um, to bring in the audience because we've looked at two very quite contrastive exhibitions which um, have aroused some passions here and let's see what they've done there so um, let's actually um, let's, let's structure it just to, to say let's gonna, we're going to talk first about Peter Doig so Hold back when you, if you've got something to say about Rebecca Quaitman, because let's let's hear let's let's take our mind back to where we were with 
Peter Doig and what we were saying about the hat. Does anyone want to correct us or share a passionate view uh, on Peter Doig? Or any view? Yes. Um, my comment is, um, I thought it was interesting to think of the paradise or non-paradise paintings in Sonnebin last year by, was it Chaim Steinbeck? By comparison. Bickerton. Not actually Bickerton, Ashley perhaps? Bickerton, yeah. Yeah, His... for the dog. Because they really were about the loss of paradise in a much more, for me, tangible way. The Bickertons or the Doigs? Oh, the Bickerton. The Bickerton. Ah, uh-huh. okay. The yeah. garish color, the, uh, the painted frames, it just set up an ambiance of incredible disturbance. Yeah, I, I thought, I think I thought of that. Um, I think that's a good point. And I suppose people who, who prefer Doig would say that um, Bickerton is just over, you know, he's like pounding you over the head with it. I mean, they're way overdone in some way and in, in illustrative. I mean, I, ha- I happen to like the work, but um, the, his issues with uh, uh, the uh, pollution and, and also the whole, he's like really reflecting on being uh, this white guy in a, you know, privileged white guy in, a, in an exotic place and, um, you know, uh, indulging, it's almost Conradian, indulging, in, you know, it's like the heart of darkness. He's indulging in, in the sexuality of the, the, the local women. He's, uh, he's doing uh, drugs, psychedelic drugs. He's like having hallucinations. He's like going out of his mind. And uh, so I, I, it, it, it's an, really, I think it's an interesting comparison. Yes, okay. Uh, yeah. For me, the, the doigs have a magic, or the magic is about a different way of seeing. And I wonder, I don't know if we're allowed to talk about both, but um, <laughs> the, why sort of Quaitman's idea of vision and a way of seeing, because it's more, I guess sort of intellectual, is privileged above the sort of more personal way of seeing that doig is expressing in his work. And then also the the use of the geometry did bother me because I felt like it was Doig doing Doig on top of M- Matthias Fischer. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah. Great. Well, that, that comment brought the two shows together. So if anyone wants to bring the two shows together or share some views on Quaitman, now it would be a great moment to do so. But what, what you just said is that's, that's what I find so uninteresting about Doig is it doesn't seem like... It seems like a, a really old and stale way of seeing... And he must be aware of that, so I'm not, you know, is he like, is there some irony in, in painting that way? And I, I, I'm not sure. It doesn't have to necessarily be irony. It could be uh, mourning. It could be, um, um, it could, it could be uh, elegiac to, to work in an anachronistic style. Not that I accept that it is necessarily, as I say, any more anachronistic than reviving a kind of support so fast minimalism semiotics of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. I'm not convinced by looking at those paintings that he knows himself what it is. Mm. 
and 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 that's a slap on the wrist for him if if the images <laughs> if the paintings if the paintings are personal and and succeed in giving us um, a very definite but but poetic sense of um, uh, a poetic sense of um, a world view um, isn't that good enough we're back on doy so <laughs> I think it's back to what what Joan said really I mean it's um, you know you'll care about ping pong if if it's painted in a way that that forces you to and I think probably ultimately it comes down to I mean mm. his his project is obviously he's in his own head and it is very hermetic and I think See, yeah. I, don't, I don't think I agree with that I don't think you could there's no way you could paint those ping pong players to make them interesting <laughs> Well, I'd be, I'd be more interested in if they were like hitting back and forth. They, um, I found them fast. So you're saying that you don't think there could never be a, any painting involving ping pong that could ever interest you, no matter what? I think, yeah. I, I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're gonna have to give you ping pong lessons, Ken. I love playing ping pong, but uh, it's like baseball. There's, you know, you can't make a good painting about baseball or football. You can't make a good sports painting. <laughs> Well, I think that, I think we we need to have a whole panel on that subject. I think that you'd be amazed. We could put together a PowerPoint of uh, you know many uh, paintings on both those subjects. That, May uh, I say something positive about yes, Doig? Yes, Yeah, something positive about Doig. Yes. Uh, I find that where he is compelling in his subject matter is when he tries to deal with the metaphysical realities, and I, I don't feel like he's quite got a handle on that. And maybe it's not possible to, but I feel like that's strongest impetus I get from him in terms of... Like the Isle of the Dead painting or the Batman painting? Yeah. Yes. What's right. the deal with the Bat painting? I don't get that. Well, Is that a metaphysical thing? Or... It's supernatural. Is it? I, I didn't know if it was like a native dressed up in some you know, bat outfit or... I have... Uh, well, I... it's good that we don't know, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, it's not literal. It's, um, it, it's evocative. It's poetic. No? I have no idea, but I did notice in one of the smaller paintings um, at Michael Werner, uh, there was a hang glider, and it, I wondered whether the, bat, the bats were, the way it was painted, I mean, the one almost could have been an elaboration of the other, so. Anyway, it's funny that this reticent panel is now stealing time from the audience, because <laughs> now, of course, uh, hands going up all over the place. I can see James Hyde at the back. Take, take the mic, if you would, to the back to the gentleman in the headband. Um, one of the things that uh, I think kind of helps about Peter Doig is uh, I don't think I've ever seen a painting or a drawing of his where anyone's working. <laughs> I, mean, it, it's, I mean, it's all leisure. Mm. Or of like some type of like psychological displacement of leisure into sort of fantasy or fantastic things. And I don't know, I'm, um, the piece, the work that I first saw of Doig that I really liked was Skiers. And I thought, damn, you can make a painting with people on a ski slope. And it was, you know, 
It might have been a print, though. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, it, and I think the ping pong player is, it's this absurd uh, leisure activity that, um, that has some uncomfortable but kind of silly resonance. And that, uh, yeah, I mean, that seems to be something of the territory uh, he's working. Thank you. Uh, there are some hands uh, around here, I think. Yes, gentlemen here. Great. If you could wait for the mic, it's just coming. Thank you. Yeah, uh, if it would help, I just thought I should let you know that with uh, reference to the bat imagery, it's a very important, vital, uh, sensual part of the carnival celebrations in Trinidad. Mm. And so in some sense, the, the imagery that we saw is, to my mind, rather disappointing. Because I find it kind of rather bland and uh, not particularly focused. And if you understand anything about the history of you know, how, that how that image came about and the history of it, uh, I don't think the two things hmm. connect very well. You know? And um, in fact, all of the references, uh, I, I don't particularly like the work. I found it dull and uninteresting. And um, but that's me. But uh, as I looked more and, and discovered that a lot of it was informed by living in Trinidad, that made it even more disappointing. All right. Um, and you know, for whatever Trinidad was, it is now a very, um, in so much as an island can become as very cosmopolitan, they wallow in money there to the extent that corruption is also very popular. Um, it's, uh, it's as busy as you know, any little pocket of New York City. People spend hours in traffic jams going to work covering a distance of less than 10 miles. I mean, it's that kind of environment. So in some ways, it's very anti-paradise, unlike some of the other islands that uh, depend very heavily on tourist traffic and tourist trade. Thank you. That's, that's so very, that is really very helpful. And there's a lady a couple of rows behind you. Um, good. Thank you. Um, well, I'm very interested to hear that because um, I felt like the, the surfaces were very, very repelling. They, were, they seemed so intentionally non-seductive and non-tropical paradisical, if that's a word. And um, so that's interesting to hear what you... Okay. I love his imagery. <laughs> they have a bit of an Edward Monk feeling. To Definitely. Them. That's the, the whole simplest thing. Monk is very, if you look at, if you go to the Dumas show, the Peyton show, there's monks all over the place. That's what I mean by the contemporary symbolist um, mm. sensibility. Why do you think this kind of work is resonating in our time? can't give you an answer to that in one minute, I'm afraid. And I feel that we perhaps actually should, um, should have, we should have come to grips with that already. So let's move on to uh, our next show, which is something completely different. It's a good subject. Uh, it's a good question. I'll write a book about it and send you a copy. Thank you, David.
Right. I don't know why we forgot to put the installation shots first, because um, in really, while it's interesting to see the individual images, which are these these prints of about 50, you know, just under six foot square, that's really, you come into the gallery and um, you see top lit this space uh, with this row of images, and you can go either side into the back space, which is almost the same volume, and in this rather unusually lit night views of the same. Good. Okay. That's uh, Sugimoto at Gagosian Gallery. So, Ken, what do you make of these? Can you ask a more specific question? Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's what not, what's not to like? They're, they're well, what's quite to like? beautiful. I mean, yes. I was saying to my friend, I thought I'd find it more interesting if they were drawn in graphite. But, um, right. Like uh, to be more like via Selman's or somebody. Yeah. I mean, there's something, they're, they're compelling, and I like, you know, there's something about, I don't know how exactly he does them, but you have some sense he, he must go out on a boat and take long exposures, and, and the, yeah, I, I, get, I get, I'm seduced. Let me ask you then a specific question. Uh, what seduced you more, the individual images or the collective experience of the installation? I think I'm a little suspicious of the installation. So I, I, I think I like them better one at a time. Would you have liked the night paintings better if you were lit the same way as the day paintings? Uh... You asked for specific, man. Come on. <laughs> can, I, can I call a friend? Yeah, when I... When I uh... <laughs> When I write that book on why Munch is so popular today, you can answer whether the night photographs would look better in daylight. Um, Elizabeth, tell me though, what 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 was what what was happening with that installation? What what sort of, what sort of did it did it induce us to spend a specific amount of time? I mean, more than average time in it because of the dark. Well, for for me, it did, and I certainly thought that the I mean, I had some issues with the installation as well, which were somewhat eradicated in, in the room that was darkened because there was less of a sense that you were looking at, they, they had less of a kind of mercantile, you know, store window kind of quality to them in that setting. And, um, and also, I mean, it was just a very kind of powerful sensation to be standing in this pitch black room. And I don't know, I mean, the fact that the, um, the lights, the the backlights, which were outlined behind the the photographs, were um, reflected in the floor in such a way that there was this kind of vertiginous feeling, as if you were kind of standing on the edge of a of an abyss or or something. And and yes, they were compelling and um, and quite beautiful. And I did think, in terms of the aside from the framing itself, but the fact that they were laid out in a row. Um, only on one wall in each gallery, I thought was successful because, or it was interesting to me because it kind of forces you to, I mean, at first I thought I was looking at kind of a film strip or a time lapse of some kind, and then you slowly realize that 
in fact, these are different settings and there isn't a clear progression from, say, fog to a clearly delineated landscape. And um, so, um, but, it, it, but it does kind of put you on a, a certain temporal, it, it leads you to kind of, it kind of dilates the, the temporal dimension of it in some way, or, or for me, it did. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, Joan, um, I, I was kind of, um, it's, it's kind of, I said, I said to the audience now for something completely different, but in fact, um, um, I mean, they are about as different, they are pretty different from Rebecca Quaitman, the last show we were looking at. Um, um, but are they entitled to be that different? I mean, are, what, what, is he grappling, do you think, when you come from um, Rebecca Quaitman and see um, Sugimoto, um, do, do you feel that um, there are any issues that Sugimoto is raising which are in any way comparable um, in terms of um, medium, representation, um, the act of seeing? I mean, these are very, these are very, almost viscerally concerned, aren't they, with seeing. Do you think the images are, are something we really see, or is it, is it, is it a kind of, a, a, is, is this act of, the, is thinking about seeing very removed from the actual images? Well, I think in looking at any artist's work, um, I always challenge myself to try to discover the terms that are set by the work and how it asks to be seen, and, and then that allows you to develop criteria by which you can level a critique upon it. And so I would say the terms of Sugimoto are entirely different than the terms of Rebecca Quaitman. And, and I see Rebecca Quaitman trying to set new terms for us in the face of an epistemological shift, where I see Sugimoto is embedded within a photographic tradition. So one cannot really create a, a compare. I mean, let's say, I don't think it's fruitful to make that kind of a comparison. Having said that, I think that Sugimoto, those works were works which demanded looking. You, you had to sit there and look at the works. And I'm going to agree with sort of the sentiments I feel in the, my fellow panelists here that the installation was problematic. Uh, it took me several minutes to get over the glaring white beveled border around the photographs, the slick black sort of one inch dimension that they were mounted on, this sort of black and white, which is a really high contrast um, experience next to the subtlety of the blacks that are in, and the tonality in these photographs made it really difficult to see them. Then the silver frames were just like, oh my god, how could somebody who had the sensibility to create the subtleties of those images put those kind of frames on them, which kind of leads you to ask if the artisan did, indeed did put those frames on well, those Well, I saw the works. same works by coincidence uh, a week later and? Uh, in Lucerne in a, in a retrospective of, of Sugimoto, and they were not framed anywhere like that. They, one just saw the night paintings the same way. So I, 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 it left me rather suspicious of the installation that, um, I, I don't imagine that it's Mr. Kagosian who decided that. I mean, it's obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a Sugimoto installation, but um, 
Um, it I guess seems it remains to be seen if they'll be fired after hearing this panel. I thought it's a very theatrical uh, thing. It made me think of Michael Fried's uh, thesis about um, theatricality. And uh, it does seem like those photographs are made to be contemplated one mm -hmm. at a time. You know, there's this kind of zen-like meditative uh, mm -hmm. spell that that they cast on you. So if you see them in a group like that, it's, they, I mean, the theater of it is kind of cool, but mm -hmm. um, it seems contrary to what the artist, what you would think, the, how the photographs would, uh, you'd expect them to be seen. Imagine yeah. if they were just those images on the wall mounted in some way that the whole framing device was taken away and you could you could actually move from one to one to one and contemplate them. I think there there were possibilities that I could find given a certain period of time to kind of filter out the framing problems that the cumulative effect did add up to something for me and I was looking at them and thinking I mean I found that they brought me to all different kinds of thoughts the more I looked at them and I was thinking about how um, how the weather that you had this extremely different weather every day and how much the weather actually impacts how we feel, whether it's a good day or a bad day, how mm. it colors our moods, how it affects how we see certain things. And it's something that we often forget about, I think, in New York mm. because it, it doesn't seem to be that powerful where someone like me who's grown up in the Midwest where you see the storm coming mm. like two hours and then it gets there and then it leaves weather is much more obvious phenomena, but I think no less powerful here. So that there, to me was, there were, there were many beautiful thoughts I had like that while looking at those images. But they're very, Elizabeth, do you, do you share the view, my view, that the imagery and the experience of seeing them in that installation um, made one feel very alone? Uh, it's, it seemed almost as if one might be looking at a world that's no longer populated. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, and, and, um... I actually was, was alone in the gallery when I... Oh, well, so I was I. It. It's, not a, it's not a blockbuster, is it? It's not a crowd. It doesn't seem to be. <laughs> um, and, and yes, for sure, I mean, um, morose was, was a word that crossed my mind when I was there, but I think actually probably what you're getting at is closer to the mark. I mean, there is yes. a certain sense of... I, does, does anybody know if they're made from film, they're not digital, I assume. I so. asked I the I gallery and they said they were a large format camera with extremely long exposures. Mm. So, I mean, that kind of technology is rapidly disappearing. And, uh, they're slow so, I mean, there's, there's, there's in some... a way of like slow food, aren't they? I mean, they're obviously, one, one does sense um, an incredible technician and uh, a craftsman. I mean, it's in, photography. In, it's, in some way, it's, a, it's photography about photography. I mean, he's, he mm -hmm. also made those um, pictures of movie theaters where that's right long long exposures in which the, the theater is dark, March, but, yes. but with a long exposure, the white mm -hmm. screen becomes mm -hmm. uh, lit up. So it's like something appear. It's almost like spirit photography, like something that mm. you couldn't mm. see actually appears on the film. I think yeah. that comes across beautifully in those night photographs. You really understand that as part of his subject. Mm. And I think the fact that, you know, that 
there's seven of them, right? So it's it's it does. Although he's coming, he's Japanese. I mean, it, it does put me in mind of the the Catholic sacraments, the seven sacraments, and also the seven deadly sins, <laughs> the seven deadly cardinal virtues. There's something uh, chapel-like in the. Um, sorry. That's true. There's seven days of creation. Oh. I'm sure we can come up with lots of sevens if we put our mind to it. And uh, Rothko was making very black paintings near the end of his life, so this, you know, it occurs to me that... And putting them in chapels, a, yes. That's a, um, an, a so, sort of a semi-conscious... Illusion. So there seems to be two very... Uh, can we, can we, is there a bridge to be formed, then, between um, the very kind of um, uh, cerebral art sort of interest of um, of how they're made and how we look and da 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 and the uh, you use the term theatrical sense of the, the, the chapel I mean you mentioned Freed I mean can we can we link his theatricality with his absorption I thought you were going to say spirituality is that um... I wasn't <laughs> sorry I wasn't I know you love spirituality I was going to talk but you mentioned Freed who's probably the least spiritual Theorists one could find, and, and so in fact, oh, you're wrong, though. Sorry, his whole thesis about conviction is totally spiritual, and it's mm -hmm. practically borders on religion. Okay, the idea of the, the sort of painting that exists <clears throat> not in time, um, you know, that it's in some other place than than the viewer is. Okay, Freed is fascinating, but let's just stick with Sugimoto. Um, uh, but, but, but continue to use Freed for Sugimoto. You've got the theatricality of the installation, and you've got the absorption in these very long, slow photographs of very morosely empty seascapes. So um, do the two come together? I think they do. They, the, they come together in your experience of looking at them because you, it's a theater for you to see them, and what happens to you as you move from one to the other to the next... Right. The whole narrative that builds in your mind and then the shift to that, it's like act two. You mm. move into the darkness. Is there any sense, though, Elizabeth, that by creating a very theatrical, um, not theatrical, but by, by, by creating an environment that really almost polices the time and the degree of concentration that we give to the work, that, that while it creates a more, say, spiritual experience, makes it harder to really um, come to any kind of material decision about the pictures? Um, I don't, I mean, not not for me. I mean, I think police is, is you know, I mean, I, I think... Police is it, too harsh? Yeah, it's, it seems okay. a little bit strong. I mean, Controls, I... Um, engenders a specific kind fascist. of... fascist? <laughs> <laughs> the totalitarian installation. Um, I mean... Disciplines. It disciplines the way we look at the work. Well, every, I mean, Discipline every, when you put a work in a space, you're disciplining the way it's viewed. I mean, even well, if you Well, if you keep the lights on and you offer people a cup of tea, it, the discipline is less severe than maybe it was. Maybe it's just passive aggressive. <laughs> um. All right, we're going to leave that one then. Okay, um. let's look at our last show, which is Mary Heilman at uh, the 303 Gallery. No, it's not. It's, uh, it's one of those Chelsea galleries that thinks it's a museum. It's the 303. 
great. And seeing how that my my colleague Gabby Grodin has managed to get the projector to show that green beautifully. I think it's a moment to say thank you for the presentation tonight. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Well, we, talk, we, were, we, 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 we couldn't quite get off the ground that argument about disciplining the way uh, you see the work with um, the darkened monastic uh, cathedral or whatever of the Sugimoto. But here we are in, in, in Mary Heilman with uh, chairs, albeit of questionable comfort, that the artist has uh, designed and that can be wheeled around um, uh, for us to actually uh, look at the work. Did you, did you take advantage of the chairs, Elizabeth? I did. Yes, I did. But I didn't, I mean, I, I rolled in the chairs, but I did not, I, I did my viewing primarily on my feet. But it was nice to know that they were there and, and you know, I tried to... Um, to um, take into account what they seem to be prompting us to do, which was to look mobily mm. or stay in motion while looking, which I, just, which I do think that her painting rewards. Um, yes, and this is a show that follows fairly fast, very fast, on the heels of um, a museum survey that originated in California, which we saw at, uh, uh, some of us could have seen, at the uh, new museum uh, very recently. Um, and there were indeed one or two older works mixed in with, the, with this um, body of work. Um, do you feel a sense of departure in, in this latest body of work? Um, yes and no. Uh, nothing very extreme. I mean, obviously she, she has several paintings that are very minimally representational, but they are representing something that you can't mistake, which is the white lines on a, mm -hmm. on a, on a road as you're as you would see them if you were driving at night. And I also noticed, um, I think almost every painting had at least one plane that was coming in at an oblique angle to the picture plane, so there was almost a sense of kind of, um, um, almost as if a, a kind of slide coming towards you. Um, and that was so prevalent that it seemed almost kind of insistent to me, um, and I found myself kind of wondering what that might, what the significance or the implications of that might be, um, and don't know that I, you know, came to a conclusive answer. But um, you know, I, I do feel that her work is always kind of there. Seems to be part part of what it's doing seems to be to not allow the viewer to kind of settle in comfortably to one perception. Um, or to one reading, and I think that this kind of um, this kind of canted space within the the pictorial space of the painting it, it it kept me sort of off balance in a kind of playful uh, way that that I enjoyed. It's, it seems to me there's a lot of uh, play with dualities. So you have the the white stripes going into space, but it's a the painting's shaped, so it becomes this. It's an object, or you have the the grid that with the melting stuff. Um, what else? And then the, the the whole thing about like the the chair as a functional work thing versus paintings as um, non non functional. Um, I don't know it's interesting. I I I, I don't know if she, clearly she's aware of it. 
Is that like the point of it, or is that just a way, it gives her something to paint? <laughs> it's funny you, you ask that question, because it, it make, suddenly it makes me think that if you took an artist who was like completely halfway between Peter Doig and Rebecca Quaitman, <laughs> it might be Mary Hyman. <laughs> Am I off the wall here, Joan, or is that a useful observation? Oh, no, you're not off the wall. <laughs> right. Um, well, Lack of intention, no, and, I think, I but think, dealing with issues that are highly intentionalized. No, it's, it would be Quaitman, Doig, Heilman. should be on the other side, not between them. Why? Why? That's interesting. Because he, he's, he's a painter making... I mean, she, she messes around with paint in this kind of um, totally irresponsible way. And... Uh, you know, she, she's and he's too anal to do that, or what? He's uh, dealing with the imagery. But she is as well, isn't she? Quite a lot, even even in but the in most a very abstract primitive uh, sort of. I mean, there's a there's a almost childlike playfulness in her work. That's part of what I find these, captivating. These, these the, grunting men are sandwiching a highly articulate woman. So let's <laughs> let's get <laughs> Joan. We've thrown around quite a lot of ideas there. What do you think? You know, when I look at Mary Hellman, I, I in this installation, I found it very important to see this one ceramic work um, up on the wall because it, it really frames a way of looking at Heilman. And I think what Ken said was right on, and that is um, she's playing around with pain in, he said, a very irresponsible way. I wouldn't articulate it like that. But, you know, one has to remember that Heilman began in ceramics, um, and so painting was a way of covering a three-dimensional object. And I think that there's something to that grounding that she always remains true to in her painting. She's always painting a surface. And so the marks and the grids and whatever happens in there is just a means for her to cover a surface with paint. And I think partly that's the joy that, that comes with Heilman. I would never look to Heilman for the kind of deep philosophical reflectiveness that one would find in Sugimoto, but Heilman's work, I remember when I first saw it in 1986 in a show at Pat Hearn in East Village. Uh, as I was talking about Heilman, she's had so much exposure recently. It seemed like everybody remembered that show over in the East Village, and there, there's a sense of joy uh, in her work, and it's kind of like, it's, it's on the surface. You know, if you go back to her roots, you see it's about the surface, and she was able to, at that time, I felt, make the paintings that everybody wanted to make, and nobody else could really make them and make them work, and I, I would say it took me 20 years to figure out why that was true, <laughs> and uh, I'll come back to her roots in ceramics as a kind of... Um, a way, uh, as a way to establish the terms in which to critique Hallman's work. She, I think that uh, that's, that's true. She's a self-taught painter. I mean, that, that idea of coating an object with paint is, I think, partly there. But if you look at the New Museum show, you also see her, like, she's stealing uh, motifs from a lot of different artists. She's, she's, like I said, you know, she's almost... She's unashamed. She's not shameless. She just she doesn't care. She just she'll take anything that she finds, and uh, she'll make a painting out of it. And it always looks like a Heilman. It never looks like anybody else. But you can see she's like looking around and and 
it seems like anything is fair game for her over, over the years, at, at least in, in the realm of um, abstraction. Looking at other, ex other abstract painters, then, in particular. Bryce Martin mm -hmm. or uh, Rothko. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. In that regard, I think it was very hard to look at the 303 show after seeing the New Museum show where there was, you know, really a selection of her greatest hits on view. Mm -hmm. And when I walked into 303, I was kind of like, oh, is that the leftovers from what didn't make it into the, you know, New Museum show? And, and, I, and I found it... Like, I, I wasn't able to give it the time it could have had, and I find the chairs extremely distracting in the space, and then when I sit down in them, I love them. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of that, the, the other thing is, like, like I was saying, that she's playing with dualities, but there's also an impulse in her to, to like, uh, this holistic, uh, like, make the whole world into a Mary Heilman uh, world. It's a bit like something of the spirit of Alexander Calder there, isn't there? A sort of, um, well, it's, um, it's they're fun, but they're more than fun. It's paradoxical, because she, mm. she, she, she didn't become an installation artist. She remained mm. true to painting, but then she can't help herself. She's got to make chairs, she's got to make cups and saucers, she's got to... Um, mm -hmm. I, somehow I imagine her living in a house, it would be like Pee Wee's Playhouse or something. <laughs> it would be like all full of just her, um, her, her spirit. There's a, there's a great variety of touch, though. You say they're all Heilmans, and yes, I can see that. There's a the definite there is a there is a Heilman um, aesthetic, but um, there's also an enormous diversity of speeds of the way paints put down in different images, and degrees of reflectiveness, and um, um, whether they're schematically representational or not. Um, it, it, is, this, is this a restless experimenter, or is this just somebody having so much fun that there's no point hon honing in on a specific mode? Elizabeth, um, what do you make of her eclecticism? My sense is that it's probably somewhere in between. I mean, I think we, can, we probably all agree that, you know, there is this incredibly kind of sort of offhand, I mean, the word homely sometimes comes mm. to mind, uh, quality to the um, to her style. But um, and yet, clearly, she. I mean, I. I think it's somewhere between very programmatic and totally experimental. I think she has. I, I think she's working towards something. I mean, I get the sense of a of a kind of um, a progression. Um, in each canvas, and I think that she, I get the sense that she does everything that she does for a reason, but that, I mean, for example, if a grid is, is wavy and very imperfect and the, and the cells of it aren't quite contiguous, it's because they didn't need to be because there's something else mm -hmm. kind of going on. Um, so I don't know if that. That's, um, that, thank you very much. That's a very thoughtful answer. Um, great, excellent. Listen, I think it's a good time because those are two shows that provoked a lot, uh, very different shows, of course, two shows that provoked a lot of interest. So let's, um, uh, let's if we can, take our mind back to... S no, Sugimoto, yeah. No, just, just, just tell me what you want to tell, tell me. So uh, wait for the mic, if you would. So our wandering mic, please, is that great? A lady in red, it'll be on your left. If you could raise your hand again, please. That would be... Yeah. 
I found the Sugimoto very much in line with the Japanese aesthetic of suggesting more that, than is revealed. And also this meditative quality and personal experience and interpretation, many of these points upon which you've touched. And also this elegance and beauty, I thought, was ethereal. And that's very Japanese. A gentleman at the back, Jay. Um, I was actually disappointed that you included Tsukimoto in your panel since the body of work is older. Um, it dates from the 90s and you usually uh, cover things that are much more current. Um, we've seen this work at art fairs and at uh, contemporary art auctions for many, many years now. Um, <clears throat> I also felt that it was Gagosian Gallery's attempt to sort of promulgate its new association with Tsukimoto. And, um, they, they overdid it, you know, they built a big wall, they mm -hmm. framed them up with museum glass, um, and uh, they brought something to the work that didn't belong there. I feel the work is very contemplative, as the lady said, and this was very theatrical. Um, and the whole thing really amounted, in my mind, to um, pouring old wine into a new bottle. Oh, yeah, okay, well, that's, that's uh, I, I, Thank you for that comment, because in fact, it is a policy of the panel to, to discuss new work, and um, so therefore we are right, you're right to wrap me over the knuckles on that one. Um, but it does, of course, then come back to this issue we've grappled with, and it's, there, is a, there is an empirical answer to it, which we just simply don't know, as to whether this is um, Sugimoto re-presenting, uh, reinventing, as it were, a body of work, or uh, the curators of it. Are they, in fact, old? Well, I mean, he just said they are. Uh, in the press release, it says in 1980, he began an ongoing series. So let's see what. Yeah, they're mostly from the 90s. Yeah. Mr. Grimm is correct. Uh, so that's, but yeah, as I say, we, 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 we're, we're, answering, we're asking a question here, which we're failing to answer. We, which we, need to, we need to find an answer to is whether this is, Sugimoto reinventing himself or his, this body of work in this presentation or is a curatorial intervention? Um, but the uh, other thing is, I mean, your point, we take your point, but I think a lot that this show is, uh, a lot of people really like this show. From, my feeling is it, it feels like a contemporary show anyway. I mean, it's part of uh, the, the discourse now. I mean, um, no matter when they were made. So. Yeah, the 90s is not that long ago, anyway. But, but, um, <laughs> but, but point taken, point taken. I'll be more careful next time. Thank you. Uh, another comment on either show. Uh, if, yes, okay, the gentleman with the mic. Go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, in these last two presentations, isn't the issue really more about the gallery than about the artist? I mean, the chairs were there only because of the gallery. And this no, uh, no, car no. sales situation with the row of possible purchase um, options uh, was also an aspect of the gallery. So it might be interesting to have a panel not on the artists but on the galleries and what they do to transform the art into something else. It would be a fascinating panel, but I think just as a point of fact, we, I think we're pretty confident that, um, well, we know that Mary Hyman makes these chairs and 
she's not the kind of lady who gets pushed around when it comes to an installation, I wouldn't think. Okay, uh, gentleman there, yes, stop. Take, take the mic back. Use the mic, if you would, sir. Sure. At the new museum, when I saw the chairs in the installation, the guard told me that she came uh, frequently and she moved the chairs to go with the pictures so that if they were in one place and it didn't go with the picture that she made the chair for, she moved it to the place that uh, she wanted it to be. She didn't have the power, however, to move all the furniture out of the cafe, which was just a few feet away from her installation and looked dangerously like more of her works. Uh, come on, let's see some more hands. Yes, uh, the lady here, the... Yeah. All right. I uh, did not see the 303 show, but I saw Mary Heilman at the new museum and was terribly disappointed. I uh, thought she was overrated. I uh, understand the irresponsible painting, well, that term being used in term, uh, terms of her work, but what I was... I thought they looked much better in reproduction than they did in reality. And I thought there would be a thereness and a freshness about her work and that I would not like Elizabeth Payton and I thought there wouldn't be a thereness and a freshness and it was almost the opposite for me. Mm. Great, thank you. Uh, yes, the lady here. Yeah. Yes, use the mic. Um, about 20 years ago, I um, got to meet uh, Sugimoto, and he mentioned that um, he printed um, each one of his prints by hand. He printed 25 of them and threw 24 away. He's a real perfectionist when it comes to printing, and I think he's very much about that. And I think that this show was important at this moment because I think it was reminding us um, the changeover we've had between digital and film and that um, um, he is a person of film and of, of printing on his own. And um, the, the room in the back to me was about negatives and, and having a negative and looking at negatives. And it reminded us that there's no more negatives anymore now that we've got digital. Fascinating. Thank you very, very much. The lady, yeah. I just wanted to say that I saw photos of other installations of his photographs, and they were in dark spaces. So in terms of the question whether that was a purely Gagosian curatorial decision or not, I would say from that that it was also Sugimoto. Yeah, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would be pushed around any more than, um, you know, I, I, think we, I think we're answering our question very satisfactorily here. And lady in the front row, uh, Ellen. I may be mistaken, but I think some time ago, he did an installation in Chicago at the Museum of Contemporary Art where you walked into a very large space and you were confronted with walls. It was almost uh, shrine-like, uh, very Asian shrine-like, I might say, and it was all dark. And at first you thought, why am I, you know, why am I here? But you had to walk past these partitions that were set up at different uh, places and go behind and look back. And uh, I think he's interested in installation. I think it's something he really cares about. Right. Yes, go on. Uh, I'd like to address this to uh, Joan. The thing that interests me so much about Sujimoto 
is that whatever he's doing, whether it's the, uh, the pictures that we saw, or the pictures, uh, the photographs of paintings, or the photographs of theaters, he seems to always be photographing time. Well, you have. I mean, I think you beautifully commented that, you know, no disrespect to Joan, but I, I thank you for that comment. It's a good one. Um, more comments? More to, yes, there's another lady here in the front row. Let's, for the sake of uh, economy of movement, let's... Uh, thank you, Dorothea. Uh, I just wanted to go back to the Mary Heilman chairs, which I saw at the New Museum, not 303 Gallery. But I was sitting and then looking at the paintings, and then other people came and sat down, and they were in my field of view, and suddenly their clothing through the weave of the backs of the chairs became paintings in their own right. And I was beginning to see this very viscerally in relation to all the paintings. It was kind of an exciting thing to suddenly realize those chairs were paintings and that we were all part of the painting experience too. Thank you. It sort of resonates with Ken's comment about her wanting to make the whole world one of her pieces. <laughs> Any, uh, quickly, anyone like a, um, anyone else bursting to say something? Uh, or uh, just half keen to say, well, maybe a new speaker if, if possible. Yeah, I'd have one other observation, which is that most, uh, except for perhaps Mary Heilman, none of the other artists are in any way engaged with chance or leaving any choice to the spectator. Hmm. I think a, um, hmm. Quaitman's work has a lot of chance that enters into it through the process and so on that maybe not you wouldn't locate in the realm of the subject, but with, through her process there are a lot of chance elements that come in. I, I think there, there's another thing about Heilman too that, that has to do with taste. That's mm -hmm. uh, you know what we think beauty is, or what, I mean the the lady there who hated uh, the, the Heilman's. You know, is it a matter of taste? Is, uh, is it an acquired taste? Because there is a sort of uh, roughness about it that uh, hmm. is deliberately trying not to not to succumb to some kind of kitsch, but in, kitschy idea of, of what. There are many. There seem to be quite a lot of abstract painters around who have that kind of. Um, I mean, Joe Fife and James Hyman, James Hyde, and others come to mind. Um, this deliberately kind of. Um, Casual, blase, nonchalant, mm. splashed down kind of aesthetic, but at the same time, um, not abstract expressionist anyway. So there seems to be, I think, I think it's it's a, a strong characteristic of her sensibility, but it's not unique to her. But one should never um, underestimate her incredible facility with paint when looking at these kind of stylistic questions because there's no doubt that she has an incredible facility. I wonder, so we have Elizabeth here, if you comment on this very rare feat of um, uh, Mary Heilman. It's a, a total eclipse of the art magazines. How often has it been in the history of art forum <laughs> and art in America that in the same month one artist has been graced um, the covers of both? That's the only example I can think of. Uh, in, I think it was September of 2007, we ran the same photograph on our cover as Freeze, and that was, um, well, no, I guess that would be example number two. That was uh, 
a Bruce Nauman work from um, Sculpture Projects Munster. So, but I think those are the only times in, in the entire history of the... Um, all the of billions the, of images out there in the world. I don't know, but there I must think, be a conspiracy. Anyway, yeah, yeah. on that note, ladies and gentlemen, see you in February. Thank you very much. Great, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. You did.